Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship service. Whether we're meeting at church in person or tuning into a YouTube recording, we continue to be united in purpose as we gather to worship and praise our God. And as we do this, we're following in the long line of joyful worshippers who for thousands of years have marveled at the greatness and goodness of God. Listen to these familiar lyrics from a song that is at least two and a half thousand years old. It's Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Before we launch into some of those joyful songs, we're going to bow before our God. Let's pray to him now. Father God, we come reverently before you and declare that you and you alone are God Almighty more holy and glorious than we could ever imagine. You truly are the faithful one, the great keeper of promises, and we worship you now as the compassionate one, the one who understands our weaknesses and needs and has proved generous and merciful when we least deserved it. Thank you, Father, for your unconditional love, shown so clearly in sending Jesus, our Saviour, to redeem us, through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. We confess that we have disappointed you this week by not always living up to your expectations. We've been foolish and selfish, fearful and unkind. And so we ask for your forgiveness for Jesus' sake. We are weak, we, we know that. But we're so glad that you are strong. Fill our hearts and minds with the joy of being your children part of your great family. And may your Holy Spirit lead us as one to give you the worship and praise that's due to you and you alone. We ask that you'll do this now in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Let's join in one of those joyful songs now as we sing together. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Genesis chapter 17 verses 1 to 13. The Covenant of Circumcision When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. For the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, 
I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you and the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant that you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. As we follow the Abraham story, we need to remember that although he takes up quite a few chapters of our Bible, we're simply getting glimpses of a very long life. A lot of Abraham's life was spent just living as a nomadic herdsman, working, leading his extended family, and waiting. A lot of waiting. The waiting, of course, was made more intense because from time to time, God would give him these intriguing little glimpses of the future. The mist would lift and he'd see a further horizon. Abraham, get up and go. There will be a land for you. Abraham, don't fear. There will be a son for you. But time is running out. And since the last promise from God in chapter 16... 13 years have passed. His son Ishmael, who apparently is not to be the answer to his prayers, is now entering manhood, and the waiting goes on. The next two stories in the Abraham cycle are about Abraham receiving a new revelation from God and a visit from God. And I believe they teach us a couple of important things. Firstly, when we are struggling with who we are, God puts his mark on us. And secondly, when we're tired of waiting, God visits us. Firstly, when we're struggling with who we are, God puts his mark on us. It was yet another day of waiting. There'd been around 5,000 of those since God last told Abraham to be patient. He would have a son by Sarah. And I'm sure one of the questions Abraham asked himself regularly during those days was, who am I? I'm a Chaldean told to leave my country and live in this place among strange people I don't know. I've become a wealthy nomad, but I'm not part of any political alliance. I don't belong to the king of Edom or the king of Sodom. God has told me and my family, I will have this land, but these other kings are ruling at the moment. I don't own any of it, and I don't have a family. I'm a type of father figure to all these workers that I have, but Sarah and I have no son of our own. Who am I? But in this particular day, God interrupts Abraham, gives him a couple more things he can hold on to as he waits. He tells Abraham who he is and what he's going to do. Reminds Abraham that he, God, has entered into a covenant with him as he'd promised many years before. Chapter 15, you remember the animals chopped in two and the smoking brazier going between them. Abraham, you may not be in any political alliance with any earthly king, but you are in something much deeper, much more binding, with someone altogether more powerful. You're not in an agreement or in an alliance or in a contract, but an unbreakable, unconditional covenant. 
with the King of Kings. And if you look at the conversation in chapter 17, it's quite easy to see how this covenant is set out, like any legal agreement. As for me, says God, verse 4, as for you, verse 9, as for Sarah, verse 15. So what is Abraham given this time to remind himself of this special covenant? Firstly, this is a story about new names. Abram, exalted father, is subtly changed to Abraham, father of multitudes. Sarah's change is less clear. The most likely is that Sarai, her birth name, means princess and looks back at her royal ancestry, while Sarah, also princess, looks forward to her royal descendants, verse 16. Kings will come out of this princess. Sarah is the only woman whose name is changed in scripture by God. The important thing is that God is marking them both as having a crucial role in salvation history. So what? Well, naming someone or something in this culture was a sign of authority. So Adam names the animals, parents name their children, God regularly gives the biblical characters new names. In the New Testament, Jesus shows his divine authority by renaming Simon as Peter and Saul as Paul. But for Abraham, his new name was well, probably something of an embarrassment. Can you imagine him telling his workers, the, the people he traded with, the local communities, I know you guys have been calling me Abram, and that's been my name for a hundred years, but from now on I'd like you to call me this old, childless, centenarian, father of multitudes, Abraham. It could likely have elicited the same ridicule from the neighbours as Noah building a boat in the middle of the desert. It's a little like how at school we used to call a friend who was being particularly dim about something, Einstein. Or the prop forward from the school rugby team was nicknamed Slim. Father of multitudes? Are you kidding me? But that was the name that God marked him with. That is who Abraham now was. He also gave him a new sign. When God enters a covenant with his people, he gives them a sign to remember it. So with Noah, his promise was marked, you remember, with the rainbow. With Abraham, it was circumcision. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Abraham, I'd be saying, oh, come on, God, how come I don't get a rainbow? But of course, God was saying something really significant to Abraham at this time. Circumcision was practiced among the other peoples at this time. It was linked with puberty. It was tied in with various superstitions about the sexual act and fertility. But this is the only known case of it being something done at birth to infants. So the emphasis is not on the cause, but on the result. Not on the act of sexual reproduction, but on the child that was being produced. The emphasis moves from the active, you are now a man, able to function as a man, to the passive. This is a mark of what God has given this child. It's a sign of grace, not of merit. There's nothing a child has done or can do to deserve it. And by being linked to the organ of reproduction, it's a sign of God's intergenerational faithfulness. Abram was getting a glimpse that these promises of God were going to stretch much, much further than his own lifetime or even the lifetime of the next generation. It is, of course, the most intimate of signs. Think about it. 
As the years passed, there wouldn't be a day go by where a young Jewish boy would not be reminded that he was marked out as God's. There wouldn't be a child born into any family of Abraham's descendants who wouldn't be reminded from the eighth day of that child's life that their family was under the covenant promises of God. They were marked as his. What was Abraham's role in all of this? Well, he had to obey the command to circumcise, which he does in verses 23 to 27. But his main responsibility can be found back at the beginning in verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, if circumcision seemed uncomfortable and intimidating, this has the potential to be even more so. At least with circumcision, you know when you've obeyed, you can tick the box. But how can anyone be blameless before God? The Hebrew word actually means to be in a relationship of integrity and completeness. It doesn't mean that you're without sin. A blameless relationship is one where there can be confession and forgiveness, where we keep short accounts with one another. Here, walking before God is a term referring to lifestyle. Our whole character is displayed in how we act and relate. And walking with God or before God implies a transparency, a being at ease, having nothing to hide. We've already seen it in Genesis. God walked with Adam in the garden. Enoch walked with God. Here, God simply asks Abraham to be in relationship with him, to walk with him as he would walk with a friend. This early on in God's story, it is made clear that it is possible for humans in all of their imperfections and doubts and disobedience still to be able to walk with God. Because, see, Abraham and Sarah aren't the only ones to receive a new name in this story. In verse 1, God gives himself a new name that Abraham can know him by. I am El Shaddai. It's translated the Lord Almighty. But it's interesting that of all the names God reveals himself by in Scripture, this is the most obscure. Scholars have never been able to get to the bottom of this one. The best I could find is that it is linked to words meaning power, faithfulness and fruitfulness. One writer says it evokes the idea that God is able to make the barren fertile and to fulfill his promises. El Shaddai. What is clear is that it meant something to Abraham at the time. God didn't just provide Abraham with a new name and a new sign, but also with a new, special, intimate revelation of himself. In their developing relationship, God and Abraham both now had new names to call each other by. What about us? Well, God was setting a pattern for how he would prove himself faithful to his people throughout history. Little by little, he would reveal more of himself through the Old Testament as his people waited and waited, even longer than Abraham's 13 years, sometimes for generations, until after one particularly long period of 400 years, God spoke a new name to his people, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When we turn to Jesus in faith and believe in him, as Abraham believed in God, we find also that God marks us as his own. We experience a new birth, says Jesus. In some cultures today, when people become Christians, they change their actual name to a biblical name, especially if their old name had pagan connotations. In the Catholic tradition in many countries, a baby gets a second name at their baptism. 
But whether you change your actual name or not, the reality is that we are now marked Jesus followers, Christians. In the book of Revelation, God promises twice to write a new name on the hearts of his people. And he has given us a sign of that. As his new covenant people, baptism continues to mark his faithfulness from generation to generation, not depending on our wavering profession, but on God's faithful promises. Paul makes that strong connection in Colossians 2 between baptism and circumcision. But on a personal level, the New Testament refers to a circumcision of the heart. In that same chapter, Colossians 2, Paul writes this, In him, You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. In Romans 2, he writes, Circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. By receiving the Holy Spirit, when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, we are marked as belonging to Christ. Here is the challenge. Just as every Jewish man could not go through a day without being reminded in a very tangible and intimate way that he was marked as God's, so too as we walk before the Lord in integrity and transparency by his Spirit, we should never be in doubt whose we are. Our life of obedience in the Spirit should be a more obvious proof of our relationship with God than something as obvious and indisputable as circumcision. Everything we do, every step we take, every minute detail of our lives should reflect who we are. The Celtic Christians got this, didn't they? Prayer for the lighting of the fire, for the baking of the bread. Prayers to say together as they walked along the road. No sacred or secular divide. Every small thing, a holy act. You see, if we see ourselves as Sunday Christians... If what we do when we take time out to watch or attend this service is divorced from the rest of our lives, then that might explain why we struggle so much with who we are and why the voices of the culture affect us so much. We're not to quench the Spirit. We have to feel and know the reality of the Spirit in our lives as clearly as if there had been a mark cut in our flesh. The amazing grace of this, of course, is that it is open to everyone. Even in Genesis 17, although it was limited to males, the sign was applied to outsiders and foreigners who were part of Abraham's household. It's a glimpse that the covenant, the new covenant, is going to be wider than just Israel. Since the coming of the Spirit, we know that the covenant promises are for all nations. We are Abraham's children through faith in Christ. Christ, who is the good shepherd, we read, who knows his sheep by name. In a world where the phrase identity politics is constantly before us. This is who we are. Transcends race and colour, gender or sexual orientation, economic or social class, political or nationalistic preferences. None of those things define us. And all of them, all of them become subject to the one who has the authority over us, the one who does the naming. When we're struggling with who we are, he puts his mark on us. We have a new name. Bless the Lord. Genesis chapter 18 verses 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. 
Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. I just want us to look much more briefly now at what happens next. If we compare verse 21 of chapter 17 with verse 10 of chapter 18, we can see that these episodes happen just within a few weeks of each other. The waiting is getting shorter, no longer 13 years, but a few weeks between God's words to Abraham. And here we see, I believe, that when we are tired waiting, God visits us. On one level, this is quite a homely picture. Abraham is dozing off at the entrance to his tent, about to take a siesta, when three men appear from nowhere. Abraham uses very deferential language, calling the leader my lord and acting with supreme generosity as if royalty had appeared. There's no indication at this stage that Abraham knows who these people are. But the story has all the hallmarks of a divine visitation, arriving out of nowhere, just appearing, knowing the inner thoughts of the characters, foretelling the future. It's not until verse 13 that we are explicitly told it is the Lord who is there, and not until chapter 19, verse 1, that we know the other two are angels. But here we have God in flesh and blood. God eating with his servant. Abraham exceeds all the conventions of hospitality. He invites them in and gives water for their feet as would be normal. Verses 4 and 5, he gets water to drink and a little bread or appetizer. But that's just a marked time when he rushes to organise an amazing feast. Look at the number of speedy words in verses 6 and 7. Hurried, quick, ran, hurried. Barking instructions, getting the food sorted. Uh, the amount that's mentioned in verse 6 would have been enough to feed an army. This is both an example of Abraham's wealth and status and also of his generosity and reverence for at this stage his unknown guests. The writer to the Hebrews was remembering this story when in chapter 13 verse 2 he encourages the Christian church to practice hospitality because by so doing some have entertained angels unawares. 
So after all the waiting, the decades since God first spoke, suddenly things are hurrying up. Everyone is rushing around. The timeline for the promised child is now less than a year. God spoke to Abraham many years before. Then he made a covenant. Then he appeared in the form of the burning torch. And now he shows up in flesh and blood. This is real. This is going to happen. And here we see also a God who knows all about us. He mentions Sarah's name. How does he know that? He asks where she is, not because he doesn't know, but so that she would hear and start listening for the message to her. God doesn't ask questions he doesn't already know the answer to. Where are you? He asked Adam in the garden. He knew where he was hiding. Where is your brother Abel? He asked Cain. He knew he had been murdered. He knows all about us. And when he had restated the promise of the son, he knew Sarah had laughed into herself. And when she denied it, he knew she was lying. This is real, but it is supernatural real. This is no ordinary visitor. Because here was a God who could bring life out of death. That's essentially what verses 11 to 12 are saying. Sarah's womb was dead. She was past menopause. And Abraham was worn out and she saw no pleasure on the horizon in that department. Romans 4, Paul says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Hebrews chapter 11. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. Because, you see, this is a God of impossible hope. When he is rebuking Sarah in verse 14, he challenges them. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a sort of question that puts you in your place, isn't it? If God be God, then of course the answer is no. It's often the timing we struggle with, though, isn't it? I'm sure that was Abraham and Sarah's problem because for them, time wasn't just running out. It had disappeared down the street, jumped in a taxi and was several postcodes away. And yet God says in verse 14, At the appointed time, you will have a son. At the appointed time, leave it to me. After years of shattered dreams and unfulfilled expectations, there were still words of supreme hope to be heard. In God's time, all would be fulfilled. And finally, this is a God of grace and truth. Sarah only says one thing audibly in these chapters, and it is a straightforward lie. And lest we be too hard on her, let's admit that we would probably be no different. Think of those years of unfulfilled promises, the quiet resignation that it wasn't going to happen. Why build herself up again only to be let down? So verse 12 says she laughed inwardly. You can just see her snorting and shaking her head. <laughs> so the lie, or the half-truth, came quickly. And it came out of all sorts of fear, verse 15. Fear of being let down again. Fear of offending this remarkable, possibly divine visitor. But it was still a lie. How does God respond to it? 
The book of Proverbs states that the Lord detests lying lips. But here there is compassion to Sarah because he knows and he understands the context. And in his grace, he purposes that he will not be thwarted by our frailness or weakness or uncooperativeness. So he simply and quietly states the facts, the truth. No, you did laugh. This part of the story ends with a wonderful word play. You may know that Isaac, the name that this promised child would receive, means he laughs. That's what it means. So the Lord asks why Sarah laughed, and she says, No, Isaac, I didn't laugh. And God looks and says to her, Isaac. No, Isaac, Isaac. The Lord's last words to her were words she would remember every time she called her son's name. Every night she whispered his name as she nursed him to sleep. She would remember the craziness of this miracle. Every time she talked about him to a friend or neighbour, she would remember her own laugh of unbelief. Every time she called him in from the fields, she would remember God's grace and faithfulness. When we're tired of waiting, God visits us. And that hope is certain because he's already done it. Did you get all the echoes in this story? A God in flesh and blood. The word became flesh and moved into our neighbourhood, writes John. A God who knows all about us. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, dot, dot, dot. As he knew the woman at the well's private life and turned her around. As he knew the rich young ruler's besetting sin and still loved him. As he knew the guilty party who had set up the woman caught in adultery. So he knows us. Nothing is hidden from him. But the gospel is that you are worse than you even think you are. But God's love for you is greater than you could ever imagine. A God who brings life out of death. They thought they had killed the author of life. But the grave could not hold him. He has destroyed the last enemy. Death has lost its sting. The door to eternal life stands open for us to walk through. A God of the impossible. Matthew chapter 19, after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, the disciples say, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Granting a child to an as good as dead 90-year-old woman was no less spectacular than turning people like you and me into children of God and faithful followers of Jesus. The salvation of any one of us is a miracle. But our God is the God of the impossible. At the appointed time, says Paul in Galatians 4, God sent his son, a greater than Isaac, born of a woman even more miraculously than from the dead womb of Sarah, in order to redeem his people. And as he spoke to Sarah, he speaks to us today. To all our lies and half-truths, he speaks the truth. To all our fears and failures, he speaks his grace. His final word to Sarah 
was Isaac. His final word to us is Yeshua, Jesus. And it's a word of sheer grace. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. This is our God. He's visited us in Christ. He's marked us with his spirit. So may his truth and grace be with us all, even through the waiting. Now we come to offer prayer as a church family. To unburden our hearts and to pray for God's help where we recognise it is most needed. I'll be leading our prayers, yes, but please join with me in making these requests to our generous, loving Heavenly Father. Let's all pray. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own devices. You are not disinterested or aloof from our everyday lives. You've proved that by even going so far as to live and work among us in the person of your Son, Jesus. We're so looking forward to celebrating Christmas, no matter how restricted our options may be, because the birth of the Christ child is the ultimate proof that you keep your promises. His special name, Emmanuel, God with us, says it all. You have loved us, ransomed us, made us new, and we love you for it, Father. We are yours, and right now we ask that you will use us in whatever way you wish to spread the good news of salvation in Jesus and to reflect something of his love and grace to everyone we meet. We're conscious that we're living in a, a global society that is spoilt by sin, with conflict, and violence, greed, hunger and disease. We can quite clearly see that you created a truly beautiful world and we want to say thank you once more for it. Help us to take better care of it, we pray, and of one another, no matter about race or creed or politics. As you have instructed us in your word, we pray now for those who are in government at local and national level. They have taken on a really difficult task, and so we want to recognise their sacrifices and efforts on our behalf. Almighty God, rule in the affairs of this province and nation. Restrain evil and build your kingdom here in justice and righteousness, we pray. May our government be guided along the best routes when it comes to dealing with the COVID pandemic, the Brexit negotiations and the social inequality. May they think and act beyond themselves to build a better, fairer, God-honouring nation. For NHS staff who so tirelessly and bravely work to combat COVID and its devastating effects on the nation's health. We say thank you and pray for their protection and success in all their endeavours. We also want to thank you for the work of Storehouse and other local groups who are working hard to alleviate poverty and hunger even in today's Belfast. Father, bless their every effort in your name. And finally, Father, we pray for our own church family, those who are mourning personal loss need your comfort. Those who are ill and frail need your healing and strength. And those who are anxious about their employment or, or lack of it need your reassurance and peace. 
We all experience frustration and even distress. And the current restrictions on our personal freedom impact so deeply on our relationships with family and friends. Father, we ask that your constant presence and unfailing love will lift our spirits and help us endure this test. And more than that, may you teach us through this to love and value our family and friends and you more than ever. You are the God who keeps his promises and so we rest easy, content that you will never let us down and that our prayers offered in Jesus' name have been heard and will be answered in line with your perfect will. Thank you, Father. Amen. I would like to end our service with a benediction, which is a blessing that you are more used to singing at baptisms. However, today this is for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.